stay with us, Lord, for it is evening. And the day is almost over. Let us pray. Gracious God, you have made all of the peoples of the earth for your glory. You invite us to serve you in freedom and in peace. Give to all your children a zeal for justice and the strength for forbearance that we may live and move in accordance with your glorious will. We ask this in the name of the one who welcomes all to be free indeed. Inspire us to live and worship in your freedom and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. Join me for the call to worship. Blessed are we when our treasures cannot be quantified. Blessed are we when our knowledge is tempered by mystery. Blessed are we when we share with each other in abundance. Blessed are we when our delight comes from beyond ourselves. May it be so. Amen. Confession is not an easy or a pleasant thing to do. We would like to think that we have been good and faithful disciples following your way. But we know in our hearts the many ways in which we have turned our backs on you and rejected your will for us. Let us join together in hearts and minds as we confess our sins to God and one another. Like the people in the wilderness, we create for ourselves idols and worship them and to discover their shallowness and emptiness in our lives. And we wonder what went wrong. Stop us in our tracks, O oh Lord. Help us to be open to your will for our lives. We know what you want us to do. Give us the persistence and the courage to do your will. Heal us from our wayward actions and attitudes. Remind us that we must reach out to others in compassion and peace. Merciful God, come to us this day with your healing power and help us again to be your disciples, offering hope and peace to your hurting and wounded world. Amen. God, who has never strayed from you, is with you. God will heal your hearts and direct your steps. Forgiven and freed, let us live fully in Christ our Lord. Amen. The peace of Christ be with you and flow through you. Our first reading for today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Let us listen for the word of God. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After he agreed with the workers to pay them a denarian, he sent them into his field. Then he went out around nine in the morning and saw others standing around in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And they went. Again around noon and then at three in the afternoon he did the same thing. Around five in the afternoon he went and found others standing around and he said to them, why are you just standing around here doing nothing all day long? Because nobody has hired us, they replied. He responded, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the workers and give them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and moving on finally to the first. When those who were hired at five in the afternoon came, each one received a denarian. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarian. And th when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. These who were hired last, these who were hired last worked one hour, and they received the same pay as we did, even though we had to work the, the whole day in the hot sun. But he replied to one of them, friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to this one who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with, the, with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I am generous? So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. Listen for the word of God. Every seventh year you must cancel all debts. This is how the cancellation is to be handled. Creditors will forgive the loans of their fellow Israelites. They won't demand repayment from their neighbors or their relatives because the Lord's year of debt cancellation has been announced. You are allowed to demand payment from foreigners, but whatever is owed you from your fellow Israelites, you must forgive. Of course, there won't be any poor persons among you because the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. But only if you carefully obey the Lord your God's voice by carefully doing every bit of this commandment that I'm giving you right now. Once the Lord your God has blessed you exactly as he said he would, you will end up lending to many different peoples but won't need to borrow a thing. You will dominate many different peoples, but they won't dominate you. Now, if there are some poor persons among you, say one of your fellow Israelites is in one of your cities in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor fellow Israelites. To the contrary, Open your hand wide to them. You must generously lend to them whatever they need. But watch yourself. Make sure no wicked thought crosses your mind, such as the seventh year is coming, the year of debt cancellation, so that you resent your poor fellow Israelites and don't give them anything. If you do that, they will cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. No, give generously to needy persons. 
don't resent giving to them because it is this very thing that will lead to the Lord your God's blessing you in all you do and work at. Poor persons will never disappear from the earth. That's why I'm giving you this command. You must open your hand generously to your fellow Israelites, to the needy among you, and to the poor who live with you in your land. If any of your fellow Hebrews, male or female, sell themselves into your service, they can work for you for six years. But in the seventh year, you must set them free from your service. Furthermore, when you set them free from your service, you must not let them go empty-handed. Instead, provide for them fully from your flock food and wine. You must give to them from that with which the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember how each of you was a slave in Egypt and how the Lord your God saved you. That's why I'm commanding you to do this right now. Now, if your male servant says to you, I don't want to leave your service because he loves you and your family and because life is good for him in your service, then you may take a needle and pierce his ear with it into the doorframe. From that point on, he will be your permanent servant. Do the same thing for female servants. Don't consider it a hardship to set these servants free from your service because they worked for you for six years at a value double that of a paid worker. The Lord your God will bless you in everything that you do. During my first year of seminary for my Old Testament class, part of our class content was learning Hebrew. Just the alphabet and some songs and vocabulary, nothing wild or anywhere near what we would learn in a full Hebrew course. However, as someone who has never learned Hebrew, which uses a completely different character system, it was definitely a challenge to learn. And it was for a lot of people. However, the Hebrew portion was only going to count for 10% of the class. So if we didn't do so well, didn't memorize all the words we needed for each quiz, it wouldn't have affected our grades that poorly. However, later in the semester, due to various reasons and other student disgruntlement around other, other aspects of the class, he told us that instead of being granted the grade that we had earned, everyone was going to get 100% on that portion of the class. Grace abounds, he calls it. Many of us, including myself, were quite grateful for that decision. However, a number of people were incredibly angry about it. They had worked really hard to get a good grade on that part of the class all semester, and it was wildly unfair for everyone at the end of the semester to get an A. Why had they spent so much time working so hard when in the end it wasn't going to matter? I get it, that isn't fair. And the frustrations to those who have worked hard for so long, and frustrating, sorry, to those who have worked hard for so long. What was more frustrating, even though the feelings were valid, was that everyone in the class was also aware of this parable we read tonight from Matthew. And isn't it just the exact same situation? Well, maybe not the same, but, but pretty parallel. A group of people work hard all day, and another group just works for an hour, and they all, get paid at this, they all get paid the same at the end of the day. A group of people work hard all semester, and another group does not work as hard, and at the end of the semester, they all get the same grade. I think what is annoying about this story and this experience is that when we think about it, in our hearts, we know that this is ultimately a good thing. To be the loser in the situation, which I guess is to be the worker who's been out in the fields all day or the student who's been studying all semester, is not really losing anything. It's just that other people are gaining when the system says that they shouldn't. 
And I think this situation can make us feel uncomfortable, even angry, especially when we are directly involved in the situation. Here at the PSC, we often talk about how this kingdom of God that Jesus presents to us turns everything on its head. It's a backwards way of thinking. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. I had a professor in college who called these instances of rejecting the status quo that we read about throughout scripture that we are asked to live into called jamming the system. It's when the system operates off a set of expected behaviors and we do the opposite or at least the unexpected, and in some cases, what might actually be sacrificial for us in the long run. It's an acknowledgement that there is something going on in society, and we are called as people of God, as members of this kingdom, to reject it, to live differently. An acknowledgement that we have the power to address it, that we are able to rise above it. Tonight, we also read from Deuteronomy, from the Law of Moses, about the forgiveness of debts and release of indentured servants. The remission of debts and other provisions for the relief of debtors are part of the Torah's program for preserving a balanced distribution of resources across society. But that doesn't make it any less of a sacrifice. I think that's why the author gets into this longer diatribe, this ethical exhortation to Israel to resist the temptation to not lend to folks in need when they are close to this year of remission. Resist those calculations because your people are in need. They are calling to you. I think it's important to note that both of these passages are referring to the poorest of the poor in society. These are farmers who needed seeds or funds because of a crop failure, or maybe a city dweller who is unemployed. These are folks who are dealing with extreme difficulties like the complete inability to pay off debts the inability to obtain a loan, and continued indentured servitude. And poverty is the cause of indentured servitude, a result of debt servitude or a default on loans. It's a vicious cycle that affects the most oppressed and keeps people oppressed. One that can be conquered, though, through debt cancellation, as Deuteronomy lifts up. This is a redistribution of wealth in an act of reparations a transfer of wealth from those who have amassed it to those who have none. Where, as the writer warns, even the passive act of refusing to lend to the poor what they need is as bad as outright abuse. Likewise, in the parable in Matthew, we are also dealing with some of the poorest in society, day laborers, where they were common, hanging out in Greek agoras or marketplaces looking for work. They were commonly uprooted from peasant or family farms due to debt, or an inability to support their own household. They look for work for minimal rates. We are told in the parable that they are paid one denarian per day, roughly the equivalent of $2 by today's standards, almost nothing. For these day laborers, life was unpredictable, marked by unemployment, malnutrition, starvation, disease, minimal wages, removal from households, and begging. So while one denarian is not going to end their poverty, the grace presented to all those who had experienced, who had the opportunity to work all day and those who were not as fortunate to be employed that day is exceeding the expectations. What we are being offered here in both the law and the gospel is a new vision of the economy, a neighborly vision of the economy, an empire of God that challenges hierarchical and patriarchal structures with its transformative power to shape an alternative way of life one in which the lowest are actually given opportunities to rise out of their situation, 
one in which people are treated with dignity and given a chance for survival. It is an economy of abundance where there is enough for everyone, one in which the select few do not hoard their wealth, are asked to make sacrifices for the betterment of all, one in which all members win. In my favorite musical, Les Mis, there is a scene toward the beginning of the story right after the infamous Jean Valjean is released from prison after 20 years for stealing a loaf of bread. In his travels, he stumbles upon a Catholic bishop's residence and is given lodging there for the night. And that evening, after being fed, he steals a bunch of the bishop's silver and runs away. Later, that night, he is captured by the authorities and returned to the bishop with the story that this bishop had given the silver to Valjean as a gift. The bishop did no such thing, but he confirms the story. He says, yes, I did give him that silver. And you know what? And he pulls more silver out, candlesticks, I think, and says, actually, I gave him these too, but he left them behind. So please take these and don't forget them next time. Forgiveness and grace. It's a jamming of the system, yes, but he takes this a step further. That in our resistance to revenge, equality, and fairness, we might remember the humanity of all of our neighbors. Deuteronomy, while instructing the wealthy to give debts and set servants, forgive debts and set servants free, also gives explicit instructions that these people who have been under your care should not leave without nothing. They are provided for in order to properly care for their own people, to make sure they aren't sent back into the same cycle that they just got out of. This is an economy of provision, which is radical, for it shatters the conventional practices of loans credits, interest, mortgages, and debt management by which any conventional market economy functions. And in some of the uncomfortable parts, where foreigners seem to be neglected and a case is made for slaves to remain with their masters, let us not forget about the context. We can and should hold some tension here, but let us also remember the Torah's repeated command, maybe one of the most repeated lines, to welcome the stranger, for you were a stranger in Egypt. Welcoming the immigrant is a central tenet, and this, what we read in Deuteronomy, is not overriding the immigrants in Israel who were there for a period of time for trade, who deserve to be treated fairly. And while we must do our due diligence in faithfully interpreting wherever the Bible talks about slavery, we must remember that its repeated command is one that seeks an equal master-slave relationship, one in which the ancient context is very different from America's history but we can't ignore how harmful these passages have been. And so I hold that with you. I'm in that tension with you. But as faithful interpreters of the text, what does it mean for us with privilege to set captives free? What does it mean to sacrifice our own security for the security of others? I think this is ultimately what these passages are asking us today. Harking back to my earlier story, these demands and the results can sometimes feel unfair. And I was curious about the ways that we experience unfairness, just as people in the 21st century. I did a crowdsourcing post on Facebook, asking people about a time when something felt unfair. I got a number of responses, some of which surprised me. So much was about arbitrary unfairness. Disease, cancer, mental illness, arthritis, miscarriage, losing loved ones, losing children. 
things that don't have a cause without anyone or anything to blame. There were others, too. Unfairness is rooted in what is an unfair system. Favorable treatment toward men and unfavorable treatment toward women in the same situations. The murder of George Floyd. While we cannot control everything and while sometimes life will be unfair, what, I am, what, what is it that I am doing? What is it that we are doing that is causing unnecessary suffering? We can control how we treat people, how we think about people. We can control what it means to love our neighbors. We have control over how we treat our individual and collective abundance of wealth. We have control over the injustice that we perpetuate. We have control over how genuine our repentance is. We have control over how we live going forward. You are loved without exception by God and by us here at the PSC. But we must all show love to everyone without exception. This includes the people indebted to us. This includes the people who have not paid us back, the people who owe us time or a service. We all find ourselves there at different times and places in our lives. But within a system that dehumanizes and makes each of us into a number or a commodity, we are asked to resist that. In a system that puts the economy over human lives, let us humanize one another. In a system where people should get what they deserve, let us forgive. In a system that calls for revenge, let us give more. Let us love and let us liberate. No exceptions. Thank you. 
Oh no. 